0: He in anaesthesia and intensive care medicine in Cardiff. He is actively involved in research and medical education and has recently published a book called Critical, Science and Stories from the Brink of Human Life. In this book he recounts some of the most interesting and memorable intensive care cases from his career so far in a very personal and enlightening way. He is an immensely talented writer and he has chosen to talk to us about remaining resilient through the highs and lows of publishing his first book. I really enjoyed talking to Matt, and his story is both engaging and heartfelt.
1: The last year or so has been tough for good ways. It's not something I'm I'm complaining about to be tough, and sometimes doing hard things is important Mm. in fact Uh, but over the last year I've I've stumbled into the world of publishing through serendipity actually I've never aimed to be an author or a writer all my life I couldn't spell my own name in school literally Um, but through serendipity I've written a book about intensive care which is called critical and that really looks at patient stories about critical care and the science behind them and I think it's been a tough year because of Three things, really. I think that issue of those highs and lows, it felt amazing for the book to be published and on the shelf. But at the same time, it's quite an exposing thing to do. Uh, It's been quite honest in there about things which are difficult to talk about, be it emotions, be it your own failings, be it talking about family stories. And of course, in the age of social media, you get a lot of feedback. Uh, some of which is wonderful, and life affirming, and some of which is is the opposite. And I think combining that exposure with, also, I'm still a full-time NHS clinician, which I love. I never not want to do that. Uh, So that's been a pretty big journey of highs and lows, and having a foot in two kind of very different worlds, if you like, has been uh, quite a strange thing to go through.
0: You mentioned about um, exposing emotions. And obviously that sort of leaves you quite open, doesn't it? Why do you think that's a difficult thing for us to do as doctors?
1: I think for a few reasons. It may be that we are self-selecting people who perhaps don't do that very easily anyway. And that might be an issue with selection with postgraduate training through those aspects. I think also that is the way you know a system produces the results that it's perfectly designed to do so. So it has to be somewhat through training. And if you look back and reflect on the assessments you've done, the exams you've done, often they encourage certainties. And for me, medicine is a massive world of uncertainties. Only really in the last year or so have I felt happy and confident enough to say words like, I don't know, to patients and their families. Uh, And yet that's obvious when patients say, will they live, will they die? Will they be home for their birthday? The real answer is, I don't know, but saying that to people is, is tough and it as much exposes your kind of frailty, I suppose, as a human, as a person, as well as a doctor, as anything else.
0: So that's, that's one big reason. So you've talked a little bit about the challenge, I guess, of writing the book and then also the, the knock-on effect of that. How has that changed you as a person and how you are at work?
1: One thing that's changed a lot through through writing it yeah. and needing to get consent and follow up patients and their families, I visited a lot of them at home actually, and that's been a tough thing to do. I went back to see one particular family whose son tragically died over a decade ago, and knocking on their front door 10 years later was the hardest thing I've ever done actually, as a doctor or as a person. But actually, what comes along with that as well is hope. Now, even in those people who sadly die, sometimes there are sparks of light in that darkness. And one particular person whose name was Chris, there was a school opened in his name subsequent to him passing away. And there are now children going to that school who may well go on to work in the hospital care for him, for example. What's more, sometimes you see patients on critical care, and you, you can be quite nihilistic about them, whether they've had brain injuries or post-cardiac arrest, and going to see them afterwards transforms that. And you're walking into somebody's home where you know, they're taking you a cup of tea or they're telling you about the university they're going to. For me, that's been a huge benefit for resilience. You know, the time scales we have in critical care are really abnormal, if you think. Follow-up for me used to be seeing an empty bed. Bed three is empty after a busy weekend. And that means that bed three either died or survived. And that's not follow-up. So I think for me, resilience can come through slightly expanding that time scale. And whether that's through follow-up clinics or other things, there's a variety of ways of doing it,
0: I guess. How do you find time for that?
1: Yeah, it is difficult. And I think ideally, as a specialty, I think we need to move towards expanding this time skill, not only for us, but for patients. You know, I think it's needed. It's in the new GPX guidelines, which is fantastic, you know, follow up, fully embedded in there. But the real answer is it's hard. I, I still check on blood results and see when patients are discharged. There are electronic ways of doing that follow-up, but nothing beats you know, that human interaction, Seeing that person again. Where I work, uh, we've got a, a wonderful psychologist there called Julie Highfield who runs a celebration event annually that invites ex patients back and their families to talk about these issues. And we also do some other more one to one follow up services. So I think there are probably organisational things that can help with that difficult time scale. And that's probably something that we need to think about more as a
0: specialty. I mean, it sounds like increased exposure to those elements just helps you deal and contextualize those emotions that you feel as a doctor when you're dealing with that situation in that moment. Do you think that's really helped?
1: I think it has. And, you know, I, I'm quite passionate as well about there are you know, there's various resilience training programs and regimes out there. And I'm, I'm sure they have a really important place in medicine and in other things. But I think just as important should be for the organisations to be resilient themselves. And having things such as that to help with follow-up and feedback is a key component. And there's also certain things in healthcare that we know will happen. We know that there will be a percentage of people who will become ill, whether it's through physical ill health or mental ill health. We know someone will call in sick on a Saturday night when they're meant to be doing a night shift. Now, these organisations we work for need to anticipate that and to fail gracefully. Uh, and so, I think there is a, a lot of work that needs to be done around organisation resilience as well as personal resilience. And really putting that responsibility and oversight
0: on on the organisations as well as the individuals. So, you've talked um, about your book and um, sort of positive effects the book had on you in terms of uh, helping you to develop some strategies for resilience. Was there any um, effects of uh, you know, putting yourself out there, being an author, putting your opinions out there? Has there been any other side to it that's, that you found difficult?
1: Yeah, I think the thing I was really most nervous about is how the book would be received, and not just book, you know, my, my thoughts and opinions, which normally I've kept aside. Yeah. writing is a wonderful way of expressing things that are uncomfortable to talk about. Um, but unlike talking, once you've written them down, they are there for perpetuity. So the thing I was most nervous about is how it would be received by colleagues, patients, and their families, actually. And like everything, I, I think one thing about resilience is almost expecting an outcome helps with dealing with it. It's a bit mm-hmm. like playing a computer game. I I love computer games, yeah. and I never buy a computer game and think. This is going to be easy. I'm going to never lose a life. I'm, I'm never going to have to defeat a boss at the end of a level. Of course, that's part of the game. And actually, that's kind of part of life. And you will have tragedies. The close family members will die. You will have an unexpected bill. You will have a flat tire when you're meant to be going to work.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think
1: what it's taught me is almost expect those things to happen and almost form your responses to them, or at least a way of dealing with it, a support structure before it happens and then you know you can spend your energy and your time doing what's best at the time rather than just worrying in that anxious
0: cycle actually i guess what we're talking about is criticism isn't it and it's about dealing with the potential for someone to query or criticize the way you've done something and i guess one of the strategies is prepare yourself for that which is great but how do you cope if you have not prepared yourself for that? I think it's hard.
1: And I've certainly had times through my career where I've had an unexpected complaint or something that didn't go the way I hoped it did. And it's tough. Mm. And I think the conclusion is, to be honest about that, actually, I'm very lucky I've got a supportive family with a wonderful wife. Our parents are still alive and so those support structures are really important we're really lucky in cardiff we've got like julia mentioned she's a psychologist who works on the unit We spends as much of her time helping staff as patients actually and that's really important i've got colleagues i can uh, talk to honestly and uh, and deal with so that's fab i also wrote a blog which was called slightly strangely squeezing the sponge and you know the analogy is that in work, often, especially when you're working in some leadership roles or as the consultant on the unit, it's almost your job to absorb that badness and that stress from others. You know, your role is to sink that within yourself, and look after patients, make sure clinical care is good, but absorb that those issues. But you also have to remember to squeeze that sponge because if you don't it will drip out and it will drip on your family members. You'll shout at your children, you'll shout at the dog, you'll eat badly, you you won't go to that exercise class. So sometimes I do things which I feel bad about. Sometimes after a night shift, I'll go to a lovely cafe and sit down and have breakfast rather than rush home. Uh, And maybe that will mean that, you know, the dog doesn't have a walk that day or i have just missed my daughter going to school mm-hmm. and i'm not saying that's a good thing but there are different ways of kind of squeezing that sponge yeah. and for me it's, it's having some time for yourself without feeling too bad or guilty about it mm-hmm. of course there's other ways there's exercise there's reading there's literature there's music there's friendship there's in all those wonderful wholesome ways but for me uh, an ex Benedictine flat white, is probably as
0: good. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> so totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really important, isn't it, to have that sort of sense of self again and to kind of give yourself, okay. allow yourself the time, isn't it, to, to just kind of recover, I guess, from situations. I guess the other thing in squeezing the sponge is, is, is talking to people about experiences that you've had to go through. Who do you choose to talk to and, and why?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's tough. guess i'll it's it's the usual answers i'll talk to my family Uh, my wife is a teacher actually and so you know she's also in a public sector so to speak which isn't blessed with huge workforce and time and everything else so that can be nice and equally it's a different sector for medicine so there are shared problems and yet those shared problems are kind of different i guess i increasingly use writing as a cathartic way to do that and you know, this doesn't have to be through a full book or anything else it can be just writing for your own purpose of reflection and I do find it's easier sometimes to write things which are hard to say and the process of that in itself can be helpful and important you know giving yourself that time uh, to reflect but again colleagues are important friends are important maintaining those social networks are tough but those are all of the things which when you're going through something hard which often are the first things to fall away. Trying to put diary dates in advance is really important. I catch up with friends from school biannually. We've got a direct debit going into a friend's bank account, so we know that money's put aside, that time is put aside.
0: So I think it's trying to
1: set up those systems almost to anticipate when things are tough that you've got an escape route or at
0: least a kind of
1: depressurization valve, I guess.
0: It sounds like there's a lot of planning involved isn't there and it's not just a case of you just cope, which is i guess sometimes how we're sort of meant to kind of tackle life as a, as a doctor and actually a lot of this might be about actually realizing and anticipating what's coming up and then trying to have some some things in place to cope with that when you get to that yeah
1: and i like the example of a black swan event up
0: until the 19th century
1: people didn't believe there was a black swan that existed and then it was discovered. It was discovered in Western Australia actually. And that's now used to describe events which are which are very hard to predict mm-hmm. as an individual event, such as 9-11 or the financial crash. You know, you can never predict the precise time when, when that will happen or the mechanisms that will happen. But what is certain, what is undoubtable is that something like that will happen. And I think it's the same in medicine. We can't predict when we will become ill or when your family will come in, or when you'll have that dreaded complaint or that letter from the GMC through your door. But sadly, like those computer games, and like those Black Swan events, it will happen one day. And I think you know, putting those kinds of plans in place, and I'm not saying I do this, I don't do this perfectly at all, I'm as guilty as anybody else, those things will happen. And I think that's probably where organisations also have a responsibility for resilience in that they have to have systems in place to cover that sickness gap, to provide psychological and physical support when that f- happens, to give some compassionate leave when somebody's loved one is ill, because these events are not predictable,
0: but they will happen. It, it sounds like an all day on ICU, doesn't it? Yeah. Black's one of them. So we talked a lot about the kind of support networks and, and having colleagues, I guess, as well, people you can go and talk to that can support you. How do you become that person that also is the support network for your colleagues? Mm. Yeah, it's
1: a tough role to be actually uh, because you need time and Mm. often the colleagues around you are equally having these issues uh, and you need to give advice and often people feel the need to give solid answers. I'm I'm quite a pragmatic kind of bloke, if you like. And uh, if somebody comes up to me with a problem, I instantly go into problem-solving mode here's a list of phone numbers this is how you can fix the issue but actually now having gone through some of those things actually I didn't want a solution I just wanted someone to listen Uh, and having space for that listening is is hard having support groups you know some hospitals have those anonymous support groups that can help Uh, having non-clinical colleagues and others who directly aren't in your line can help I guess but but it is hard
0: You obviously got quite a busy career. You've been writing books, you're working on a busy intensive care unit, involved in research as well. What advice would you give to people who are facing a career that might be quite busy? What tips would you give them to try and uh, succeed or to, to thrive in that environment?
1: The tips I would probably say, which has been said a million times before, first of all, do what you love because that makes it. Not easy, uh, but easier. I genuinely love my job. Uh, and I say to my children, I have got two girls who are seven and 10. My eldest is very, very quiet and booky and um, hates the thought of blood and gore. And my youngest is a redhead and she's completely unhinged. <laughs> and they often say, daddy, you know, I want to be a vet or a doctor. And I often say it's the best job in the world. And I genuinely believe that. It's not always the best life in the world. But well, that is up to how you set things up. I think there's an increasing move to less than full-time jobs and training. And that may be because of the stress put on by pensions and other financial instruments. But actually, that may turn out to be quite a good thing for medicine. The word portfolio career is talked about a lot. And I, I do like doing different things. And that keeps keeps the interest there. But I think you also have to have a i'd call a, a red string i guess there's a there's a greek myth a greek story about uh, somebody fighting their way through lab, the labyrinth and although people before them were the greatest fighters they didn't always survive because they couldn't find their way out of the maze uh, this one particular uh, person took in the ball of red wool with them and they managed to fight but also find their way out from the maze so i think it's important to always remember to have that red thread, that red string. And that may be through music, it may be through the sport you do, maybe through your family links, being able to find a way out.